The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Have you lost a loved one recently? Do you find it hard to move on with your life? There are lots of questions and a quest for a solution. Where do you start? Welcome to From Morning to Morning with your host, Rabbi Mel Glazer. Rabbi Mel and his guests are here to guide you through the different stages of grief and help you heal from your loss. You'll come away with a much better understanding of how you can move forward. Now, here's Rabbi Mel. Well, good evening, my friends. It's good to be with you again. I love this uh, show. I love being with you. I love teaching you. I love learning from you. If you want to call me and my guest, whom I'll introduce in a minute, the number is 888-346-9141. One more time. 888-346-9141. So my guest this evening... Dr. Kate Raphael, and for those of you who didn't read her biography on the site, I will be happy to uh, tell you who she is and what she wrote, and then we're going to chat tonight about hospice. So she wrote, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska. I attended college at the University of Nebraska Medical Center College of Nursing. I worked in the ICU ER for eight years prior to attending medical school, again at the University of Nebraska Medical Center. I completed my residency in family medicine at St. Joseph's Hospital in Denver and began practicing in Colorado Springs in 1995. Hospice and palliative care has been my main focus for the past 17 years. I am married and have two children, Alex and Sam, ages 18 and 20. Now, that's what she wrote. Now I'm going to add a little bit. Um, Her kids, Alex and Sam, who are both wonderful, I am pleased that I have known them for a long time, and I officiated at their bar and bat mitzvah at my congregation, at which Dr. Kate Raphael is a member. So, Kate, welcome. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Rabbi. Good to be here. Good. So this show talks about grief and healing and loss and how to move from morning to morning and and as the title says. And so uh, you're here to talk about hospice. Now, the good thing is that more and more people know about hospice than used to. And so I'm really happy about that. Um, still, you know, there are people who don't know so much about hospice. So I want you to start at the beginning and explain to us what hospice is. Okay. Hospice care 
is actually a philosophy in which the patient and their family elect to mainly uh, have comfort care, which means that they have decided that they no longer want aggressive treatment, um, which often at the point in time in which a person is eligible for hospice, aggressive treatment and, um, for instance, cancer medications and treatments will no longer be effective anyways and may actually end up causing more harm to the patient. So um, hospice is really about providing a pa- uh, helping a patient's quality of life by improving any symptoms they might have, uh, such as pain, nausea and vomiting, um, fatigue, uh, shortness of breath, weakness. So, as I understand it, and I've talked a lot about hospice on the show in the past 12 weeks since it began, uh, when you can't cure them, you give them to hospice which cares for them. Difference between curative and caring. Not that doctors in hospital don't care, but as you said, there's a limit. And some people choose, you know, not to go any farther. So uh, how, how long, when somebody goes into hospice, and um, I know there are different kinds of hospice care, which you're going to talk about, which I'm going to ask you about in a minute. Uh, one is in the hospital and one is at home. So how long do they usually remain in hospice? That really depends on their diagnosis. Um, Medicare, which, as you know, is, you know, guides a lot of our medical care these days. The Medicare benefit states that a person who enters hospice technically has six months or less to live. Um, but frequently we, we, we have patients that are in our program much longer than that. And uh, we like to think that sometimes that's because of the care that they're receiving. In fact, there are studies that show specifically patients with lung cancer tend to live longer if they have received palliative, meaning comfort, care. Now, having said all of that, the average stay, length of stay, sadly enough, across the country, is about two weeks or less. And we feel that, and, and, you know, what that is basically saying is that there are a lot of people that come into hospice way too late, that had they come into our program sooner, they could have reaped a lot more of the benefits of being in the program. Why do you think they wait so long? I think there are a couple of reasons. You know, the main reason is people really don't want to give up. Um, we see people, uh, which is why a lot of times, especially people, again, with, with uh, disease such as cancer, you know, frequently they, they just had their last chemo and pretty much they're, you know, they're done. Their body is, is just, you know, no longer able to thrive, and so frequently they always had their last treatment, and then they come into us, but a lot of times it's the treatment that has potentially caused a lot of their symptoms. Um, you know, like not being able to eat, losing a lot of weight, 
because of not being able to eat and just the cancer in itself also causes a lot of weight loss and and uh and frequently these patients are in a lot of pain and they come in they we make them comfortable we get their pain under control they do a little bit of work and uh i think sometimes it's their body is just done and other times it's because they're they're able to die because they're more comfortable if that makes okay. any sense i i, I... You know, when I go, and it's in my uh, document, my uh, whatever you call that document, that they always ask you about when you go see your eye doctor, do you have a, you know, a will and a, and a power of attorney and all that? So, you know, I want to I wanna die at home. So talk about what you do for people who want to stay home till the end. We... Absolutely. The most of our patients are in their own homes. The um, hospice that I work for has about 250 patients on a daily basis. And the majority of those patients, probably 175 of those patients, are living in their own homes. And some of those patients are actually, the patients who come into us a little bit earlier are sometimes driving still and going out and being able to go out to dinner and, you know, go about some of their business. Usually they're, you know, they're not fully working, but still are able to get out. Um, so when, when a person is in their own home, the, the team comes to that person. Uh, we have a registered nurse that comes at least once a week. We have a CNA that will come to the home two to three times a week, depending on the patient needs, and that person will help with bathing and other personal care. We have a chaplain available. The chaplain isn't a mandatory part of the team in that the patient, you know, the, the, the chaplain and our counselors make contact with the patient and family, but they, they, you know, that is up to the family and the patient whether they want that person, that part of the team to uh, participate in their care. And then we also have volunteers that will come into the home to help with errands, maybe sit with the patient while the, the family member, you know, runs an errand themselves. Right. So, um, and then we also, and our program, and this is getting to be pretty true across the country, there is usually a physician and or nurse practitioner that follows the patient and also comes to the home to make visits. Right. When you talk about chaplains, it's very interesting because, as you know, uh, there are lots of people who, during their lives, are not particularly religious or observant or spiritual or, or what have you. They're, you know, they, they just live their lives. And when they get inside of hospice, all of a sudden they start to understand what's going to happen and that they're not leaving hospice. Uh, whether it's at home or in the hospital. And mm-hmm. sometimes that's when I get the call. And I get lots of calls because, as you know, I'm the only uh, rabbi here in town uh, who's active in the community. I will get lots of calls that patients in the hospital or in hospice, uh, family would like to see me and the patient would like to talk to me. So interesting. Right. You know, when you when you know you're dying, 
you get religious or you want some kind of spiritual strength and support. And I enjoy it because that's what I do. I, I talk about grief and I, when I go into a room, uh, I try to, I ask the question, I, I empty the room of family. I ask them to give me and the person who's there a little time. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, by the way, nothing clears a room faster than a clergy <laughs> person asking, I'd like a few minutes with Jack. Would you please? And that's it. I mean, 30 seconds, and they're out of there. Of course, people are afraid to talk about that. Anyway, so I go, and I have a wonderful conversation, if they can. When we saw each other last week, he really couldn't. Sometimes he can, I understand. Sometimes he couldn't. Uh, but what I do is talk about how do you leave? How do you leave this world behind? How do you leave your friends? How do you um, uh, leave your family? And I tell them four things that I recommend they say when they have their final conversation. One is, I forgive you and tell them what you forgive them for. Second is, I apologize to you for whatever I've done and talk about what you've done that has caused them hurt or anger. And the third thing is, I really enjoyed when we fill in the blank, when we went on a trip together, when we celebrated a holiday meal together as a family. And the fourth thing is, um, I love you. And if they want to say goodbye, because it's really near the end, so Mm -hmm. I advise them to do that. It's so moving to me, because I've seen it happen so many times, and I'm sure you have as well. When they leave this earth, they leave clean. They leave it as with their relationships at peace, if that's possible. And they clean up, you know, I like to say the emotional garbage in their lives. And they, this is an opportunity to say goodbye. And for some people, you know, the, the um, two weeks that they have in hospice are the most important two weeks of their lives. And it's so meaningful a time for them, and I am honored that they let me in, and I'm sure you're honored they let you in. Absolutely. There's just so much work that can be done, even in that short period of time, in helping families resolve issues, helping the patients resolve issues. And, um, I mean, I guess that's really the only good thing about knowing that you may be dying in the very near future is you have time. You've been given that gift of time to to make those amends, such as you mentioned, and, you know, get your affairs in order and, and make peace with yourself and other people and your God. It's so important, and it's so... It gives them such peace of mind, I've seen. It, it's just... It just creates a sense of peace. So they know, we like to say, rest in peace. Well, they like to know and th- help and hope that they will be able to rest in peace because they have made these amends and they have, they have healed those wounds 
that either they have caused or somebody else has caused. And I, I talk to a lot of people uh, who are either in hospice or going to be in hospice. And they tell me things like, well, my son doesn't talk to me anymore. We haven't spoken for years. And I say, you know what? I think he's waiting for you to call him. No, that can't be. Well, I push him a little bit and I say, I want you to call him. And oftentimes he does. We're going to take a few minutes for a break. And Kate and I will be right back. what makes the most successful people tick. Keep listening to the Voice America Empowerment Channel. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. How do you define work? Is it that mundane Monday through Friday place that seems to be sucking a third of your life out of you? Or have you made it a place of personal fulfillment, achievement, and purpose? If you are looking to make your work life the latter, tune in to Working on Purpose with Elise Cortez. There are all kinds of inspiring work-life stories told by people who have made work something to look forward to every day. Working on Purpose can be heard every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Empowerment. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, Rabbi Mel Glazer back with you. My guest tonight is Dr. Kate Raphael, who is not only a member of my congregation, but a personal friend. And her kids are lovely. I love them both. And uh, she's here to talk about hospice and we just finished talking about healing that that your time in hospice however long you spend in hospice and whether you are uh, in hospice care at home or whether you are in hospice at the hospital uh, that that time which Kate says is often not nearly enough time but never mind that time can be used as a time for healing, and I encourage hospice patients, as I do all of my hospital patients, you know, to try to make amends because you want to, when you die, you want to die at peace with uh, those that you were near and sometimes dear to. And when it happens, it's like you can feel God's presence. Um, Kate, let me ask you a question. I just, an hour ago, was reading through Esquire magazine. Don't ask me why I read Esquire magazine. I have no idea. It's on my uh, iPad. And so 
it, it wasn't a coincidence. I read this article that talked about when you're in hospice, it doesn't mean you just lay in bed and die. You can, you can do all kinds of things. You, I mean, you can go out, you can, you can, it talked about a woman who had a bucket list and she was in hospice and she went out and the staff helped her to, to do these things. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. You know, part of, you know, we like to say that, you know, you know, people think hospice think, oh my gosh, you know, you only go there when you're totally on your deathbed and you're, you know, it's all about dying. But, you know, we, we like to say it, it's, it's really about living, and it's about improving quality of life at the end of life. And so that is always the ultimate goal. Even the patients that come into our inpatient unit, which is where I work, our goal, if, if possible, is to get them home, get them back to their own home, and get them back to potentially at least some degree of activity that they're used to, just like you said, maybe be able to go out, to lunch at least, or, or, or the simplest thing, be able to sit out in their own backyard and, you know, stare up at, stare out at Pikes Peak. Although if you've been to our inpatient unit, everybody on the west side of the building has the best view in the city of Pikes Peak. So that's pay extra for that? <laughs> that's a little extra. No, they don't pay extra for that. <laughs> but that, that's a little perk I have in my job. Every room I go into, I get to look out at Pikes Peak and, and marvel so, at so that one. Your goal, you said, is to get them home. The goal is, you know, we do have a lot of patients that, you know, are not going to be able to go home. Uh, But our unit is really for severe symptoms. I I like to call our inpatient unit the ICU of hospice care because it's really intended for people who are having bad symptoms that need to be, um, that we need to get under control. Um, so, you know, we do what we need to do to get their pain under control, and we frequently have people who who came in to us not eating or drinking, you know, pretty much just lying there in bed, and we get their pain under control, we get their nausea under control, they start eating, <laughs> they start sitting up, and we are able to move them back to their own home or sometimes to a long-term care facility. We also do have a fair number of patients in the long-term care facilities in town. But um, when I was more, when I was working more in the outpatient realm, I had several patients that were, you know, still, you know, up around walking, able to drive, able to get out of the house. I even had a, a one young woman who, who, who did work. I know before I said people aren't usually working, but we did have a young woman who continued to work for several months while she was in hospice. Um, and then eventually, you know, then she had to start working from home and then eventually, you know, she had to stop working, but just, you know, keeping her pain in good control, keeping her nausea in good control, allowed her to have more energy and to be able to go about her everyday business. Um, well, it's amazing. I, I re- recall amazing. a story from years ago. This was not uh, anyone in my hospice, but it was a person up in Denver, a young woman <laughs> with breast cancer, who's whose goal was to run uh, uh, the Susan G. Komen race, a 5K. And so the hospice up there, you know, treated her with fluids, which we don't usually do. That's not something that is real typical 
for hospice, but she, her goal was to run the, the race, or she probably walked it, but they got, gave her IV fluids and made sure her pain was under control, and, and, and she got out there and was able to run that race, and that was her goal. Mm-hmm. I do believe she died a couple of days later, but she, she did what she wanted to do, and, and that's she, what it's all then, about for us. And then after she did what she wanted to do, she could let herself die. Yes, absolutely. She, she did that bucket list item that you were talking about, and, yeah. and then she was able to let go. We've known lots of people like that who are seriously ill and close to death, but they force themselves to live a little bit longer because they have a joyous family occasion, whether it's a wedding or a bar mitzvah or, a, or, or something else, and they, they just they force themselves. And then after they go to this, this, this happy occasion, they realize, okay, I'm done. I'm finished. It's over. I did. I lived my life. I can now leave. And I think the strength that people show when they, uh, I hate to use the word gird my loins, but that's what they do. You know, they, they, um, emotionally, they build up their strength and you guys help them physically with their strength. So they do what they what they want to do desperately before they can leave this world. I think it's wonderful. I'm jealous personally because <laughs> I don't do 5K races, you know, and I could uh, probably. Um, it's very interesting. I want you to tell me uh, and my listeners a a good hospice story. Something that. Somebody whom uh, you and, and or somebody whose family, you know, was special and made their mark on you and that you, you maybe you learned something from them or you were particularly close to them. Is there anybody like that? Well, well, I, I learned something almost every day from my patients. I will say that. There's always something to learn from the patients and their family. There's always some grace Mm -hmm. that comes from working with people at the end of their life. And uh, and it's also very special to see people feel better. You know, I, I can't... I'm not curing anyone, but I, I, I feel like I'm healing people in the sense of helping them feel better and be able to go about their business a little bit better. Wow, I'm trying to think. I mean, there have been, there have been I've been doing this for 17 years, and there have been a lot of people over the years. Um, <laughs> so I'm having trouble spontaneously coming up with a particular story that, that I can I, relate. Oh, I, oh, that's why I asked you. I want you to dig deep, Kate. Yeah. Um, let's see. I, I I actually have a a current patient who's quite young and. Um, How young? In her forties. Oh dear. Yeah. And uh, 
you know, she's very, very determined that this isn't going to be the end for her, um, which is great because it may not be because we actually also do have people who graduate, as we say, from hospice on occasion. Um, and those aren't typically people who have cancer, but t- people who have other diseases. We, we, we have a lot of patients who have end stage heart disease or end stage liver disease or end stage lung disease that are in our program. We also have patients with Alzheimer's and other types of dementia. Um, but this young woman is, was in horrible, horrible pain and she's in no pain at the moment. And she's ready to get back out there and, and try to just get back to a normal life again. And so we're helping her do that. Good for you. I guess that's, that's feeling like a success story for me because, you know, of course, as you can imagine, if telling, if someone asks you what you do, and you tell them that you work in hospice, it can be a real conversation stopper. <laughs> you know, people are kind of like, oh. Yeah, tell me about it. I talk about that grief. That would be a terrible That's job. <laughs> but it's probably, it's, I find it actually way more rewarding than I ever found my, my uh, primary care job that I was doing initially. Because I feel like I'm helping a lot more people this way. Right. And their families. The family is a really integral part, too, of what we do, especially with um, the grieving process. You know, there's so much anticipatory grief, as you know, with in both the patients and the families. And um, so a lot of this being in hospice at an early stage of the terminal illness is also very, very helpful to the families in helping them realize what's going on, helping them make amends with the patient and just, you know, getting to a point where they are able also to accept their loved one's death, impending death. I agree with you. And what we do is not easy work. And, yeah, it's a conversation stopper. Yeah. Automatically. If you want to empty the room, you'd say, I'm, I work in hospice. <laughs> or, yeah, I'm a grief guy, okay? And that's the end of that conversation. So we talk baseball. Now, I want my listeners to know that not only is Kate Raphael um, working in hospice, but she, she helps the dead with the next part of their journey. She is our a chair of our women's Hever Kedisha, uh, our holy society, uh, about whom I have spoken a little bit before. And, you know, in Jewish tradition, it's traditional that when you die, first of all, you are watched over from, you know, until the time of the funeral. Nobody should ever be left alone. And second, you are prepared physically and emotionally by uh, women prepare women and men prepare men and there are five or six women and Kate is the chair and she makes the tough decisions if there are tough decisions to be made. So we wash them to clean them physically and then we dry them off and then we 
wash them again to clean them spiritually, there are prayers and there is um, not a lot of conversation. Uh, you're, you can talk about, you know, things related to the, the Hever Kedisha process, but you usually don't talk a whole lot. Anyway, so, and then we, we, dress, we dry them again and we dress them in a white shroud and we, we physically pick them up and we put them in the wooden coffin that we Jews use for burial. And then we um, close the coffin and then we, the members of the Chavar Kedisha, apologize to them if we have unwittingly done anything that harmed them. Now you could say, well, they're dead. They don't feel anything. But uh, I don't believe that death is the uh, physical death is the end. Um, and so we apologize to them because they are God's creatures. And we don't want to do anything, God forbid, that would, uh, even if it's an accident, that would um, harm them emotionally. And so we apologize to them and then we wheel the coffin with them in it to the, uh, into the chapel in the funeral home or wherever we happen to be and people come and sit all night with them in three-hour shifts until the funeral, which is usually tomorrow. So Kate is really, you know, she is so wonderfully active and so wonderfully supportive of people in the final stages of their life. And she doesn't just help them die, but she cleanses their body physically and emotionally after they die. And I want to publicly thank you in front of my two million listeners across the world, Kate. You do holy work. And thank you. Uh, it's important work, and I'm glad that you're on the Hebra. Now, I have a question for you. How do you feel, Kate Raphael, doing this work? I mean, what is, what, when you walk out after having helped somebody who's in hospice, who has less time to live, will have less time to live the next time you see them, how do you, what happens inside of you that interests me? How, I, are you asking me how that affects me or yep, yep. what's? How does your heart that, feel? What do you, how do you feel doing this work in hospice? Um, most of the time, I, I feel uplifted by it. Because like I said, I, you know, it's very gratifying to take some, you know, to have a patient who's in uh, suffering and be able to help them not be suffering anymore, you know, by helping their pain or helping their other symptoms get better. Um, sometimes, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it can be really rough sometimes, especially when we, you know, we tend to have runs of, of, um, you know, very young patients and, you know, I, I have to admit that, you know, especially as we get older, you know, the young is relative and it's, sometimes it can be really hard to take care of patients day after day who, who are basically, 
you know, in our minds, too young to be dying. Right. And, you know, leaving behind children and leaving behind, you know, or being cut, you know, being, what's the phrase, cut down in their, you know, at the height of their careers, <laughs> whatever, you know, that, that, it, it, that is, it's hard. It can be very hard. But um, I think I've, I've learned over the years to do a lot of self-care. And, and I think I've also learned, um, I mean, it really is part of life. You know, death is, is part of life. And, and so you just go through it. You just do, you do, do the, the job and, and take care of, I take care of myself and right. encourage my coworkers to take care of themselves and, and, and get away when you need to get away so that you can be refreshed and do it again. Okay, Kate, we have, next week. we have a break coming up, and uh, we will be right back. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Encouraged and connected on our lively, award-winning Healthy Living Power Hour. Star Style, Be the Star You Are, with hosts Cynthia Bryan and Heather Brittany. Live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Tune in to the Power Party for positive, uplifting, life-changing talk radio. Visit StarStyleRadio.com. Success starts here. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. It's your world. You are listening to From Morning to Morning. To find out more about our program, visit GriefOK.com. Again, that's GriefOK.com. Now, back to From Morning to Morning. Hi, we're back. I'm with my uh, hospice uh, specialist and good friend, Dr. Kate Raphael. And we've been talking about hospice and uh, just in general and what happens at hospice. And, and I learned that hospice is not, you'll forgive me, a dead end for people. I mean, most people don't, you know, walk out alive, but while you're in hospice, uh, Kate tells me that some people, she mentioned a, a woman who, who still worked and, and a woman who did a race, and I didn't know that. I really thought it was a place you went to die and you were gone. So right before the break, I asked Kate to talk about if she had a, a specific family or patient that that really moved her in a certain way and her response was she learns something every day from every patient and every family and during the break we were talking about the the reaction of the families to our participation in the life of their loved one and I said to her that uh, when I officiated weddings 
I'm not sure anybody's listening to what I have to say because they're not really there for that. They want the wedding to end so they can go to the hors d'oeuvres so that the bride and groom can go on their honeymoon. Uh, like that. But when I'm in a room with somebody and when Kate is in a room with somebody who is um, dying imminently, they listen. The family listens to us. Kate, talk a little bit more about that and, and we'll talk about some other stuff in a minute. What we were talking about. Well, you know, what I, I guess what I was saying is, yes, the family's very intensely listening and but the most frequent question the family has is how long does the patient have because again I'm working in the inpatient area where the our patients are typically very very ill or at least having very severe symptoms and and you know the answer is always we don't know because we really don't know you know, we try to prognosticate in terms of maybe, you know, sometimes minutes to hours, hours to days, days to weeks. But ultimately, I've been fooled so many times. It's, it, you know, it's just, it's very hard to tell. Even I recall, okay, talking about having an impact. So I recall a, a, a patient several months ago. Very, very um, stoic person, um, great family, and I literally was standing at the bedside thinking, he's going to die any minute now. Where's his wife? Get the wife. Get his wife back in the room because I think he's going to die. And so we gathered everyone in there, and uh, we really thought he was going to take his last breath any minute. And that gentleman lived for three more weeks. So, <laughs> so he was not ready. I don't know what it was. Maybe that was all the energy of everyone coming into the room. But he, he just bounced back <laughs> and was eating oh. again. And uh, so you just it's it's that is the the most frequently asked question and the hardest question to answer because it's not in my hands. It's not in our hands. Of course not. And it's so unpredictable. And we have to grieve the notion, I think, that we have control or that we have no control over those kinds of things. Because we have no control, and you know that is, you know, better than most people. But we, we like to think that you know, Mama, who's in her 80s, um, she's going to die soon, especially if she's in hospice. But, uh, you know, if you have a son or a daughter who's 12 years old, they're not going to die anytime soon. And yet you've seen 12-year-olds in hospice. And so right. we have to give up. We have to lay that notion down. Well, that's part of the grief for me for, of families who finally come to understand that nobody's ever going to be able to tell you how long they have to live. And it's one of those ideas that we grow up with. And that's why, you know, when, when I ask people, what's the worst death there is? So the immediate answer is the death of a child. And I say, I've heard that a lot, lots of times before. The problem with that is 
first of all, it's not true. Every death is the worst death of all. You just thought that that kid was going to live till 80 or 90. But what do we know? We don't have any control over life and death. Only God does. And when your time comes, your time comes. And what I find is that when a child dies, it's much harder for the parents to heal in part because they get a new last name, as I like to say. So, uh, oh, uh, there's Jack and Sandy. Their son died at the age of 12. That becomes their new last name. And so people think first of the fact that their kid died early and there must be something wrong with them. They're different too. And they're, you know, there's something unusual about them when in fact, uh, nothing has anything to do with uh, the parents. Your death is your death and you die when you die. So I'm a real fan of saying, don't say that the death of a child is the toughest And then I give the example, if my Bubby died and uh, somebody's 12-year-old son died, would I ever grieve the loss of my Bubby less? Because I would say, well, you know what? She lived a good life. She was 85 years old. She was supposed to die. She got sick. But the 12-year-old, you know, they're really hurting. But nobody feels that way. Every death is mourned, I say, at 100%, whether they're 85 years old or they're 12 years old. That it's is true. So hard. You know, it's, it's so hard to get that through people's minds. Right, because they're both, they're lo- it's a loss, regardless. Loss is a loss. I mean... A loss is a loss, exactly. That's right. That's right. Now, I will admit that the youngest kid I ever buried was was about 11. And that was really tough for me. And I've seen all kinds of death situations. But that was really tough. He was um, crossing the street to go home. His mother was on the other side of the street. She said, okay, it's all right to cross now. And, of course, there was a guy in a car speeding, and wham... He drove right into the kid, and the kid was in the hospital, you know, for two weeks, and then he died. Mm. Now, I don't know where that lady has healed, because I'm not there anymore with her. But that's, you know, despite what I just said, that every death is is a death, and is mourned equally at 100%, there is a difference, and I understand that, and you understand that. It's tough, though, sometimes. Um, Absolutely. And that, I wanted to bring that uh, point up along those lines of, you know, every death is, you know, a death and a special person died to someone. And um, that is another, another thing that hospice does offer. There is a uh, 13-month grief program. Every every family member of uh, of a patient who dies is eligible to participate in our grief program for the 13 months past the 
uh, anniversary of the death of their family member or their loved one. So it doesn't matter, you know, if grandma was 104, you know, you still are grieving that. You might have known, you know, and everybody grieves. And no matter what, the patient's age, and and so everyone's eligible for that, that program. Is that a weekly thing or a monthly thing? How does it work? You know, I believe it depends. And we also have a special program for children who are grieving. Yeah. And the children, I know, meet once a week at least. The adults, I'm not sure, quite frankly, how often they meet. And we don't have a huge number. You know, I, I think the statistics are something like only maybe 20, 30% right. of family members actually, you know, participate in that. We'd like to see that be a little higher, but... Um, I have a theory about why that is. And my theory is that in a lot of cases... They've been sick for years. Yeah. The people that you see in hospice and their family, I can't say it, but knows it really well. They're exhausted, the family members. Right. Caregivers. And they, you know, they'll go in and they'll sit with them every day and they won't do anything because, you know, hospice staff takes wonderful care of them. And then the family goes home at night and they're exhausted. And they wonder, what did I do all day? I don't know. So the death becomes a blessing. And it's not that they rejoice, but it's over. Thank God, it's over. There's no more pain. And they can get back to their lives. Correct. It's so interesting to me. That's why I have seen in 40 years of of the remnant, in terms of um, sitting Shiva, the seven-day period of mourning, that hardly anybody does that anymore because they've been pre-mourning, anticipatory grieving, and they've been caring for their sick parent, and they're just tired. And so, in, in a sense, they sit Shiva before the death, not after the death. And I, I can I can speak to that personally, because as you know, um, my brother died about 18 months ago, and I knew he was. I knew he was going to die, and I watched him decline. Slowly over the year, he he died about a year, in a month to the date of his diagnosis, and it was a, um, after the first four months of treatment, he had a pretty. You know, everything was pretty much downhill at that point. So he, so we really watched him decline, you know, for nine months. Yeah, it's hard. And uh, it was hard. But, you know, by the time he actually died, I, uh, you know, sometimes I felt like something wrong with me because I'm, you know. You weren't I'm crying. Not, right. Yeah, I'm, I was okay because... Because yep. just by because of what you said, you know, I already did my grieving beforehand right. and grieved the loss of his life and the law. You know, he he, you know, he was a young man. He didn't want to die, of course, and it was very hard watching him go through that. Um, but then, you know, it really ultimately that was the, he was going to die. So when he ultimately died, it was it really was, you know, a blessing. It's a relief, yes, and, it was a blessing and a relief. 
And, well, I think well, that's a good place never to say stop. It was a blessing, but it was, you know what I'm saying. And, and I so know exactly the, what you're my saying. grieving was was almost complete by that time, not of completely course. complete, but you know what I'm saying. So, right. and that's why I think what you're saying about other people, they've already grieved yep. and they're, they've accepted the death and they don't need that post-death counseling. Well, part of the reason, and we'll end with this, is because uh, a lot of these people are taken very good care of in hospice. And I, uh, I am honored that you have been my guest uh, uh, you have added to our conversation and understanding. I want to talk a little bit about my guest next week. Her name is Lizzie Miles. She lives in Columbus, Ohio, and she is the uh, she works with what we call death cafes. And if you want to Google death cafes, <laughs> you'll find her. She was she did the first one in the United States. Started, I think, in England, and she did the first one. And people come and they have tea and crumpets or whatever they're going to do together in a restaurant, and they talk about death. So Lizzie Miles next week. I've enjoyed having Kate Raphael, and I thank you. Um, if anybody wants to contact me, Rabbi Mel at griefok.com. This is From Morning Till Morning. I'll see you all next week. Thank you again for joining Rabbi Mel Glazer for From Morning to Morning. Please tune in again next Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We're wishing you strength and hope in the next week.